You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for this teaching series on Leviticus, A Call to Priesthood. We are concluding Leviticus today. To which many of you guys are like, please, talk about something else. Still confused. Some of you are like, oh, this brain stuff, it's great. Uh, It's been met with varying degrees of acceptance. Here's what I hope. Leviticus is still going to be a confusing book, right? There's just a lot of stuff in it where you're like, huh? What I hope we've done, though, is pull the veil back a little bit on kind of the general flow of what Leviticus is up to and what it's trying to accomplish in the larger story that God's trying to tell the world. And I want to make sure that you guys hear me say, we are just cracking the door open to what's available in this book. Kind of, I mean, that's kind of true of anything that we do from a sermon, but this is an exciting book. It's got a lot of stuff in it. So I hope that you guys continue to pursue that. Today, we're going to tie it down, but in order for us to do that, I've got to give you a little bit of historical kind of context. Now, there's a gal by the name of Sandra Richter that talks about this, what I'm about to share with you, in a book called Epic of Eden. It's a great book. If you're interested in this stuff, please read it and uh, learn from it and disagree with it and come back and throw it at me and go, I can't believe you recommended this book. Um, write a blog about me or whatever, that, whatever you want to do. Uh, with that, but this book is really good on this this particular content. Uh, and what we're going to talk about is covenant. Any time that God works with man, He always makes a covenant. If you read the Bible, it's full of God entering into covenant with with His people. Now, this is not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. There's all kinds of covenants going on. One of those covenants is called the suzerain vassal covenant. Okay. So we're going to throw up a diagram for you. The suzerain, you can say it however you want. Um, I had somebody this week call it a suzerain, and I was like, well, I don't don't want to call it that because it makes me feel like we're having a baby. Suzerain covenant. So uh, suzerain vassal covenant and there's, there's a format that it follows that's actually pretty critical. The first piece of it is what's called the historical prologue. The historical prologue is, here's the story of how we got to where we are. Now, if you think about it, what's been happening in, for Leviticus, what's been happening in Genesis and Exodus is the story of how we got to where we are, Right? But typically, in a suzerain-vassal covenant, the suzerain is the more powerful party, the vassal is the less powerful party, and there's always a covenant between a lesser and a greater. There's, that always happens. And it's the greater who sets the terms to the deal. Why? Because he's the boss. He can, he can say whatever he wants to. You, like, so they typically happen when, a, when one king invades another country and, and beats them. Okay, we're going to enter into a covenant here. Um, there's great nations that did this. Assyria did this. Uh, all, all throughout history, great nations did this, where they would come in and conquer you, and then they would enter into a covenant with you. But the covenant never really works out in the vassal's favor. It doesn't because the historical prologue emphasizes the conquests of 
the suzerain, the, the stronger party, the one who's super powerful, the one who's real, I am, look at me, uh, how awesome I am. I am the suzerain and in this covenant, da, 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 da. Now, the second part to it is the statement of the two parties, the, the greater and the lesser. Basically, it's the terms to the deal. I, the greater, am going to do ba 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 You, the lesser, you're going to do this, da 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 Now, what if you don't like it as the lesser one? Well, the next section is the blessings and the curses. If you do what we say, we're going to let you live. If you don't, bad things, man, bad things. So the, the suzerain vassal covenant always kinds of fo- kind of follows the same pattern. There's the historical prologue. Here's the story that got us to where we are today. Then here's the terms to the deal. And then here's the blessings and curses. Now, where we're at in Leviticus today, as we tie this book down, is a covenant that God is making. And it's full of blessings and curses, but I want to show you that it's not, it's, it looks the same on the surface, but it isn't. There's some critical differences that we have to understand, and in order to do that, we got to go all the way back to Genesis 12, which is a passage that we've read before, but this is about God, the first time that God comes to Abraham to make his covenant with him, this is his covenant that God makes with Abraham. So let's read it. To the, the Lord had said to Abram, this is before his name got changed to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So this is, go back to the last slide. There you go. This is the suzerain terms to the deal. See it? This is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going I'm to do all this stuff. I'm going to make your name great. And don't forget that last line, and you will be a blessing. Now, let's read the next slide. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what is the point of God's covenant with Abram? So that everybody in the whole world will be blessed. That's always been the point. It was never about Abraham being special and being made great. God has always looked for a group of people that he can make great, but they won't forget what it feels like to be broken so that they can go back and be a blessing to those who are living in brokenness. And the problem that we face is we become great and then we like it. And we get comfortable, and we sit back, and we rest. It is the rare exception that remembers what it feels like to be broken. And so God is always looking for a group of people to make their name great, to make them powerful, so that they can go back into brokenness and help others find healing, wholeness, and freedom. Make sense? This has always been God's agenda for his people. It's never changed. All the way back to Abraham, it's never changed. And this is the call of Leviticus. It's the call of priesthood. It's the call for you and me. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, 
then our mission is really simple. Go to broken places and help them find healing and freedom and wholeness. That's what we do. Now, we've talked a lot about this literary structure called chiasm throughout this series. And if you're new with us, uh, a chiasm is a poem. It's a literary structure where the outsides of the section mirror each other. And then they work, next section mirrors, next section mirrors, to the middle. And in the middle, we find the point. What is the point of all of this? Leviticus 26 is a chiasm. So is, we said that the book of Leviticus is one giant chiasm, but there's several smaller ones in the middle of it. 26 is one. Also, chapter 27 is one. That's another sermon for another day. But I want to show you what this looks like in Leviticus 26. So rather than read it, I just want to give you the structure of what it's doing, okay? So let's, let's take a look at this. If you walk in, uh, Leviticus 26 opens with, if you follow my rules, laws, decrees, and commands that I'm giving you today, and if you walk in them, then I'm going to do this to you. And he says, if you, you will have no idols, and you got to keep the Sabbaths. If you're going to walk with God, you can't have any idols, and you got to keep the Sabbaths. The Sabbath thing is really important to God. Like it really is important to God. You know why? Because Sabbath at one level proves that you trust God to do the work that he said he was going to do rather than you trying to stress out and do it all yourself. By the way, this is also behind the principle of tithing. Why do we tithe? Does God need your money? No, God, his streets are gold. Your streets are asphalt. His streets are gold. He doesn't need your money. But you need to know that God can do more with your 90% than, he can, than you can do with your 100. You need to know that. You need to know that it's God who provides. Make sense? So God sets up these opportunities for us to say, God, we trust you. And when you choose not to tithe, you're saying, God, I don't trust you. Period. End of story. Done. There's not a more, more conversation to have. I trust you or I don't. That's right. And you can't say, well, I don't like how the church spends the money. Who cares? That's not your critique. God says do it. So do it. Or you don't trust God to deal with the church. Or somewhere along the way, if you refuse to tithe, you don't trust the Lord. This is the principle of Scripture. We'll talk more about that in February. But it's the same thing with Sabbath. Do we rest when we, sh we sh shouldn't be working? Or do we work when we should be resting? What is that all about? What God says, if you're going to walk with me, you're going to rest. You're going to trust me. If you don't walk... Then I'll destroy your high places and the land will rest. He goes, look, if you, don't, if you start putting up idols and you don't walk with me, I'll destroy your idols on my own and I'm going to drive you out of the land and the land will rest on its own. The land will rest because you chose it or the land will rest because I choose it. Make sense? Next one. If you walk with me, follow my rules, laws, decrees, I'm going to send rain in its season and the land will yield its crops. If you don't, you're going to eat your sons and daughters. Urgh. Yeah, it did. It happened. It's actually, historically, it happened. Next one. If you walk with me, you will eat bread until you're full. If you don't, 
then 10 women will bake bread in one oven because the portions will be so small. Next one. If you walk, you'll dwell in safety and peace and no one will make you afraid. If you don't, the sword will be loosed in your land to exact vengeance over the covenant violation. Next one. If you walk with me, I'll remove wild beasts. If, don't, if you don't, I will let loose wild beasts. Next one. If you walk, the sword won't pass through your land. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and they will fall by the sword before you. I love that. It's so manly. I love like, it makes me think of when I was a kid with a stick, you know, chasing the, taking on the armies by myself. I believed I could then. If you don't, you will flee even when no one is chasing you. Mm. There's a sermon there. If you do, next slide. You'll be fruitful and multiply and you'll eat old store. What that means is you're going to eat last year's crop and maybe even the year before's crop before you, before you even have to worry about harvesting the stuff that's ready to go. You're still going to be eating crop from years past. If you don't, you'll sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. Next one. If you walk with me, I will make my dwelling among you. Verse 16, if you don't, I'm going to visit you with panic. By the way, both of those are implicit on God's presence. God's going to show up in your midst because he's everywhere. The question is, is that going to be a joy to you or is that going to be a problem for you? God's going to show up. How do you feel about it? Now, all of this is rooted in the center of the poem. Here's why we live the way we do. Verse 13, because it's God who brought us out of slavery. And it's God who broke the bars of our yoke. And it's God who made us walk upright. That's why. What's interesting about this covenant is it's not, it's very similar to the typical suzerain vassal covenant. Of course, of course this is how God would do it, except God's not trying to tell him how dominant he is. He's not trying to say, look at how I beat you down. He's like, look, I did all these things for you. I did, I did, I set you free. And the reason why this matters is because I set you free so that you could go help others be set free. What I want to point out very clearly is that the punishments of the covenant are not about do the crime, do the time. They're not. They're there and they're real, but not about doing the time. Now, I want to, I want to unpack that a little bit because I think this is critical for us to understand who God is. What you believe about the nature of God says so much, not about whether or not you keep the rules so much, but why you keep the rules, and that's the difference maker, okay? I want to look at the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Ezekiel liberally pulls from the book of Leviticus. It's, I mean, Ezekiel, because he's calling his people back to priesthood, which is exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> you're a priest of God, act like it. Stop acting like you're a right fighter because it doesn't help anybody. 
Go be a priest of God. Put him on display correctly. That's the book of Leviticus. Love this book. Let's look at Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, the land of Israel. Now listen to this. An end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. <laughs> and my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in, the, in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster. Behold, it comes. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come upon you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. The day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst and then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Whoa. If God was Mr. Potato Head, he'd just put on his angry eyes. Like that... Whoa. And that's kind of the book of Ezekiel. Like, when you say we're going to quote out of Ezekiel, you should go, eh, a little bit, right? Because he's coming after him. Now, what happens is Ezekiel goes to the priests and he says, this is what God says. And they say, okay. So they go through the land and they tear down all the idols. And God still won't bless them. And they got to figure out why. And so they go back to Ezekiel. And, and let's look at, picking up the story in, in chapter 14. It says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets up the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are all estranged from me through their idols." What is he trying to accomplish? Put that last slide back up. I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. This is always God's objective. Why wouldn't he bless them? Because they went through the land and tore down all the idols, but they didn't love God anymore. They were serving the idols in their hearts, which is maybe a conversation for you and I to have. Listen. The agenda of God is never to make you pay for what you did wrong. If you believe that at any level, you don't understand grace at all. God's not trying to make you pay for what you did wrong. But when God's priests refuse to walk out the, the agenda that God has, then we tell people an improper story about who our God is. And so he has to intervene because he dwells amongst us. 
And so we're trying to say this God that lives with us, he acts this way. And God's like, no, I don't. And if you become so obstinate that you don't care what he has to say anymore, then he has to intervene. Not to make you pay, but to correct your path so that the world will know who he is. Because that's always been our call, is to be a blessing to all people. That's always been our call. I love this book. Because this paints a picture very clearly. Look, this whole walking with the Lord thing, it's not about you getting a certain lifestyle. It's not about that. It's about you walking the path that God has set out for you in a way that tells the world correctly who he is. Now, if you go on in the book of Ezekiel, there's a restoration. And lest you think that all the prophets are always just doom and gloom, you read every prophet, every prophet, including Jeremiah. Like as soon as you say Jeremiah, you should wince because that guy, that book is rough. But even Jeremiah, the end of the book is always about restoration. It's not about making people pay. It's always about restoration. Always. Look at Ezekiel 47. Now they go through the valley of the dry bones and there's all this famine and pestilence and the land is waste and all these visions that Ezekiel has. Well, now all of a sudden, we're gonna start to see the resolve. And here's what it says. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple. The temple opens the possibility of water quenching the land, all of a sudden, the famine, the desert, the pestilence, all that stuff can go away. Where does the water resonate from? Say the temple. For crying out loud. Who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? All y'all. So what is our task? Our task is to quench a dry land. That's always been our mission. Uh, was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. And then he brought me out by a way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel 47 and 48 start to talk about this rejuvenation of the land. Why does it matter? Why doesn't God just wipe us out and start over? Well, read 48.35, Ezekiel 48.35. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, which is a whole other sermon, but... I'm not going to talk about it. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Not the Lord who strikes the blow anymore. The name of the city is the Lord is there. Now put that back into Leviticus 26. Why is it so important for us to remember that it was out of slavery that God brought us? Because he has made his dwelling amongst us. 
And that will either be a joy for the world or it will be a nuisance. And that largely depends on us walking out what God has asked us to do. Not so that we'll be blessed and be great, but so that everyone in the nation can experience brokenness, finding wholeness, healing, and freedom. That's our mission. That's our mission. Now, that being said, we have some choices. You and I, we have some choices. Because what's really easy for us to do is to follow God passionately and intently and focused and, and we start to experience the blessing and all that stuff and there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is the longer, the problem with the blessing of God is living in it well. It gets hard because we want to start resting and relaxing and sitting back and what God is saying is, no, don't you ever forget that it was I who brought you out of slavery. I broke the yoke. I made you stand upright. You don't have to, and I would suggest that many of us in here still try to carry around the yoke of slavery and we're all slumped over. Like in our spiritual life, we're like, no, no. You can never, never tell the whole story of who God is by only talking about what you were saved from. Now, is that part of your story? Yes. Don't ever lose it, but that's not what defines you. You are not the sum total of your past mistakes. You are what God says you are, and he calls you a child of God, a priest of the Most High, so you might as well act like it. Because that's what he says you are. And by the way, if you don't believe that, when God and I disagree, who's right and who's wrong? He's always right. It's like, he's always right. I wish... I wish that I could be right once, just one time. It would save me a lot of headaches if I could just be right one time. If God was like, okay, Aaron, you outthought me on that one. Uh, I haven't found that place yet, but doggone it, I keep trying. We're called to live in the truth of what God has made us so that, so that other people can receive the same benefit. This was never about you feeling better about yourself. It's not about your self-esteem. Although I would say you probably ought to have some pretty good self-esteem because I don't know if you know this, but God thinks you're kind of a big deal. Yes. This has always been and it always will be about you and I taking hold of the truth of who we are before God so that we can be a blessing to all nations. Hallelujah. Now we're gonna move towards the Lord's table. And what that means is, uh, for us, every week we take communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, you call it whatever you want. But at our church, we have what's called an open table. And that means that if you are willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, you're invited to the table. You're invited to partake with us. But we want to ask you to hold the elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Um, while they're passing that out, I want to run through some implications. Probably lots more than this, but I want to run through a few implications. Number one, God's plan. Make space for other people. God's plan 
make space for other people. This blessing of God thing is not about me. It's not about you. God's plan has always been about those people. Whoever your those people might be. And it's not the same for everybody. Like some people, some people in our congregation are super passionate about um, foster kids and that's awesome. For some, they're super passionate about night to shine and that's awesome. For some, people are super passionate about addiction or celebrate recovery or um, doing different things. Like some, we all have these, we all know who are those people are and they're not the same people and that is okay. The goal isn't for me to convince you what I think is those people. The goal is for you to walk out faithfully God's agenda in front of whoever your those people might be. Whether that's the religious, I don't even know what to say. Uh, the people who are too religious for their own good. Or that's the people who don't believe that God ever even sees them or notices them. Listen to me, if you came this morning and you feel alone and far from God, I want you to hear me say that God's plan is for you too. Amen. And this is a place where I hope you can discover a God who's for you. He's not fighting against you. He's for you. Next implication. You may carry the consequences for poor choices, but they don't define you. They remind you and redeem you. Listen, we don't walk, we don't walk away from the poor choices that we made when we say yes to Jesus. I wish that was true. I wish that was true. Now, the consequences in the sense of salvation, absolutely. But, um, you know, if I'm an addict and I give my life to Christ and then I wake up the next morning, guess what? I'm still going to want to use you know why? Because that's a consequence of the decisions that I've made. I don't have to give in to it, but I'm going to carry that. If I violate the trust of my wife, the next morning when I wake up, guess what? She's still, still going to have a hard time trusting me. I don't like magically like walk away from the consequences of those decisions. But they don't have to define me. I am not the sum total of my mistakes. Yeah, I'm so thankful for that because I could never be up here if that was true. I am who God says I am and my mistakes remind me about what brokenness feels like. It reminds me that I don't ever want to go back there. And if I have God's heart, it reminds me that I don't want anybody else to experience that either. And that's okay. Because that drives my passion to be a, a priest of God in front of the world so that they can see who he is. Last implication. God is inviting you to partner with him in restoring what sin has broken. Now, whether or not you believe this earth is going to burn at the end of time, and you know, I've heard all kinds of Christian doctrines and theologies about, well, if the earth's going to be destroyed anyway, why care about it? Why be, you know, why take care of it? Here's the deal. Because God's agenda invites us to restore what sin broke until it returns. And even if it is going to get burned up, even if that's the end game, 
God invites us to take care of it in the way that he intended us to take care of it until such time as that happens. From the dirt to the trees to the animals to people. God invites us to steward creation in a way that's consistent with who he is. So cut the trees down. Cut them down, all of them. Just put something back. Simple. What Leviticus 26 does for me, and this is probably the most important part, we can't forget that Leviticus is bookended by, Leviticus 26 is bookended by chapter 25 and 27. Chapter 25 is a chapter about redeeming the land. Chapter 27 is about redeeming people. And that's always going to be our mission and it all emanates from the center of this reality that it's God who brought us out of slavery. It's God who broke our yoke and it's God who made us walk upright. Communion reminds us that we serve a God who has no place that he will not go to tell you how much he loves you. There's no shadow or corner or dark space that God has not shined light into in order to tell you how much he loves you. That's what this is. It's a reminder of how much God loves us. It reminds us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup's a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, what an amazing privilege you've given us. What an amazing honor you have bestowed on us that you would give us your name and tell us to represent you well to the rest of the world. And Lord, uh, I pray that you'd help us to live in the truth of that. Um, Most of all, Lord, make your name great because of how these people choose to walk out your mission. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like to find out more information about who we are, what we're about, or what's happening in our church, make sure to check out liferotp.com and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter.